The year is 1815. We're off the coast of Sambawa, Indonesia. Before us, a gargantuan cloud of smoke billows from the island's peak. The black fog explodes into the air 27 miles high, blocking the sun completely. All of the surrounding islands are covered in a dark veil of ash and molten rock. Explosions shatter the sky, booming louder than an atomic bomb and traveling for thousands of miles in every direction. Pumice rafts, or rocky tufts of earth mixed with uprooted trees, form a crust on the ocean surface stretching three miles across in some places. Down the mountainside of the island, a volcanic cascade of superheated air and debris destroy anything in its path, entombing the inhabitants of Sambawa like those of Pompeii centuries earlier. Our nostrils are assaulted with the smell of sulfur, the inescapable aroma of the Earth's hot vomit. The atmosphere above is dented with smog. High up, the fallout is carried on the wind. The sun will set outlined in red, purple, and pink as far north as London for the following months. That summer, snow would fall. I'm Zach Lovelace, and this is Circa. Science fiction is by far the most popular genre to date, with stories like Alien, Blade Runner, 2001, Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, The Terminator, anything superhero-related, and of course, Star Wars. The fantastic genre explores aspects of technology and humanity, and often how those two intersect. We get robots, aliens, zombies, time travelers, dinosaurs, spaceships, and lightsabers. It's near inexhaustible in its range and is one of the most malleable genres out there. For something to be science fiction, it must contain something speculative in nature. Say, clones or mutant turtles. And really, that's it. Much of our world today was predicted by the science fiction writers before us. This is just a taste. In H.G. Wells' novel, The World Set Free, we see atomic war for the first time, 30 years before the bombs were dropped on Japan. In 1911, Hugo Gernsback's novel, Ralph 124C Another, anticipated solar energy, TV, video phones, synthetic fibers, space shuttles, and sound in film. In Edward Bellamy's 1888 novel, Looking Backward, he predicted the use of credit cards as a primary form of payment. E.M. Forrester's book, The Machine Stops, introduces a Skype-like communication between its characters in 1910. And most recently, John Brunner's Stand on Zanzibar, written in 1968 but set in 2010, shows the U.S. run by a President Obama, and the country is riddled with terrorist attacks and school shootings. Weed is legal, and Detroit is bankrupt. Today, science fiction is one of the most creative forms of social commentary. With books like Fahrenheit 451 and Brave New World, the very real issues of censorship and genetics are presented in provocative ways, conveying complex thematic ideas with visions of our future. You'd be hard-pressed to find a high school that doesn't allot both of those books in their advanced reading. But it isn't just the books that are written, it's the movies, and not just any sci-fi movie, but... George Lucas, in a 1981 interview, states that the inspiration for Emperor Palpatine in the original films was President Nixon. He even designed the throne room of the Death Star in the shape of an oval, a not-so-subtle hint at the message he was sending. That means without Watergate, we may never have had one of the best movie villains of all time. Science fiction can be anything we want it to be. 
by taking us to different worlds, it stretches the limits of what we know about ourselves in our own reality. It helps us winnow out our identity as the human race, our standing in the cosmos. Therefore, finding out where it came from is an important task. Now, the tree of science fiction is an enormous one, with branches stretching across other genres, and so its origin has many suspected roots, many supposed genesis. There's a lot of credit to be given to Plato and his contemporaries for the philosophical nature of the genre, but I align with Brian Aldiss when he says that it all started with one tale, one crucial piece of literature, the story of Frankenstein. It would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science, who sought to create a man after his own image, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to, uh, well, we've warned you. Aldous states that it is in this story that we see science fiction as we know it for the very first time. This is primarily because the main character, Dr. Frankenstein, uses technology for achievements beyond the scope of science at the time. With that, a more concrete definition of science fiction can be found. It is a genre determined by what is impossible by the standards of the time it was produced. It is timeless, yet dictated by the time it was created. So who is the writer of this seminal work? A girl, not but 21 years old at the time, by the name of Mary Godwin. Mary Godwin was 19 years old when she spent the summer in Switzerland with Lord Byron, the poet, John Polidori, the physician, and Percy Shelley, the author, who was to later become her husband. The group had planned to be outdoors most of the time, enjoying the summer heat. But this summer was different. The year before, Mount Tambora, a volcano in southern Indonesia, had erupted, shooting millions of tons of ash into the atmosphere. It is the largest volcanic eruption to date, killing at least 71,000 people. The resulting fallout would obscure sunlight and cause climate shifts across the planet. In New York, snow fell in June and ice blocked channels for the months to follow. Food shortages gripped the countryside. Prices skyrocketed. A similar situation was true in England and the rest of Europe. The Irish had to flee their homes, begging for food. Famine struck hard, causing food riots in many countries. And all along, no one knew the cause. They even dubbed it the year without a summer. Thus was true of Mary Godwin and her companions in the Swiss Alps. The severe changes in weather kept them inside, away from the chill rainfall. To pass the time, Percy Shelley suggested they swap ghost stories around the log fire. It was Lord Byron who then proposed they write their own stories. Night after night, Mary stayed awake, and each morning she had no answer for her friends. She was stuck, no idea in sight. But then, after a particular conversation about the spark of life, she was struck with the idea. The idea of a corpse being reanimated, 
via electricity. Just a few years prior, scientist Luigi Galvani had discovered what he called animal electricity when he touched his scalpel to the leg of a dead frog, and it twitched. From there, a spark was made. The experiments grew darker, more warped, reanimating executed prisoners for audiences, watching the cadaver's arms raise in the air, their faces contort, their eyes open. It was these things that possessed Shelley, and it was these things that would make her famous. Frankenstein was anonymously published in 1818. This was due in large part to the backlash of sexism that Shelley anticipated upon its release. Still, with the famous literary father, William Godwin, it was hard to keep it under wraps. Soon word broke out and the critics smelled blood. They bashed the novel for its feminine touch and for being a pale imitation of her father's own work. Despite the critics' obvious sexist reviews, the book was immensely popular. It was adapted into several stage plays, one of which was translated into French only a few years after its initial debut. Audiences latched on to the moral and religious themes, horrific scientific quandaries aside. The book reads more like a Shakespearean tragedy than the father of all science fiction. At the center of this tale, the creator struggles with the responsibility for his creation, and a creation struggles with the concept of existence, the product of a poor imitation of the divine resurrection. Disturbing as this was at the time, many tried to find Shelley's inspiration for this godlike scientist. But the author herself says, he came to her in a dream. But still theories pop up. Most say her husband Percy was her main model. But there's one theory that tickles my fancy. The book's original title was Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus. Now this name, The Modern Prometheus. It was shared by only one of her contemporaries, Benjamin Franklin. It was philosopher Immanuel Kant who gave Franklin that name, and as you can see, Franklin and Frankenstein aren't too far off. The theory states that Mary Shelley was inspired by Franklin and his efforts to stitch together a country from the disparate fragments of the English Empire, a country that would promise new life. I loved Star Wars when I was a kid. I collected the toys obsessively. I still have to fight the compulsion not to buy a toy when I see it. I remember seeing Revenge of the Sith in theaters twice, sword fighting with my friends in the backyard and making up our own stories to all the toys we had. I even made a stop motion movie starring Dengar the Bounty Hunter that's now been completely lost to time. Star Wars was the first science fiction film to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Why is that? I think it's because it perfectly exemplifies the genre. It succeeds in giving us an elaborate vision. It seamlessly takes us to another world and lets our imaginations grow there. Science fiction is elastic. It can be anything, applied to any area of life. It will always go before us, predicting the future, begging us to follow it. No history, fictional or real, is separable from our own. Science fiction is our history that hasn't happened yet. Tomorrow, like Frankenstein's monster, is made in our image. Thank you for listening. Circa is written and recorded by me and produced by The Bento Block. And a very special thank you to those supporting the show on Patreon. If you have a moment, please leave a review on iTunes. We'd love the feedback on the show, and it helps immensely 
with visibility on all podcasting platforms. See you next Monday, and remember, you are history.